It's John 20, verse 1 and 11 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this time, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where have you put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this offering this morning. Thank you for providing for us in so many ways. And as we come to your word, we ask that you would open it to our hearts and we'd understand something new about your great love for us. And we pray that you would take this offering of money and use it in your kingdom to further advance your kingdom throughout Pasadena, throughout LA, California, and the whole world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I speak this morning for a few minutes, these lovely ladies are going to decorate the cross um, as a symbol and as a sign of, of new life. So I guess if we were to go out on the streets this morning and we asked people, like, what's Easter all about? What's one word that summarizes Easter? I imagine some of the kids out there might tell us about chocolate or about bunnies or about eggs. But for Mary, one of Jesus' first disciples, as she encountered the risen Lord Jesus, I think the word that she would have used above every other word would have been the word hope. Hope of a new beginning, hope of a new life. The last two years around the world have been really challenging ones, haven't they, if we're really honest. Um, on top of all the normal challenges that we face in everyday life, we've had COVID, we've had financial pain, racial injustice, political disillusionment, loneliness, mental health challenges, and now if that's not enough, we turn on the news and we see that there's a big war brewing and running in Eastern Europe. And in the darkness, this kind of darkness that we face these last few years, we're, we're forced to ask this question. Where is hope? Is there any unshakable hope anymore? Is there any unshakable hope for the brokenness of our stuff and our lives? Is there any hope for the brokenness of the world out there? And is there any hope for the future as we look to what might come? And then we have to ask, well, where do we find that hope that we're so looking for? Do we look for it in a career and getting financially wealthy? 
Do we look for it in vaccines? Do we look for it from political change? Do we look for it on the fact that we're going to one day meet that beautiful person on internet dating who will become the love of our lives and make us complete and whole? Will we look for it in education, or will we even look for it in the latest Apple product that will finally make our lives as brilliant as they've been promising for the last 20 years? It hasn't quite happened yet. Like, where do we go to find hope? Because, of course, most of those things are really, really good. But now more than ever, I think we've figured out that those things aren't enough. They aren't powerful enough. They aren't strong enough. They aren't permanent enough to put our faith and our hopes and our lives in. And so where do we find an unshakable hope for a world in a place of uncertainty? And the answer is here. In the resurrection and the good news of Easter, we find new beginnings, new starts, hope, and the offer of new life. See, Mary approached the tomb thinking that all hope had gone, and yet what she found was a new hope, a certain hope, an unshakable hope. And I want to talk to you about three things that Mary found at the resurrection of Jesus. The first thing is that she found in the resurrection of Jesus, she found an unshakable hope for her life and for our lives. You know, Mary had a past and not just any kind of past. The Bible tells us that she was traumatically influenced and oppressed by severe demonic forces. She had deep psychological and emotional trauma. She lived in a culture where to be just a woman was to be overlooked, was to be uh, oppressed, was to have no rights and be considered just property. Everything had gone against Mary, and she probably found her life overwhelmed by her own brokenness. And I think like Mary, we too can find ourselves overwhelmed by our brokenness. We carry, don't we, the hurts, the hang-ups, the habits that weigh us down in life, the wounds that we felt from abuse or rejection or regrets or words that have been said to us, mistakes that we have had done to us and things that we have done to others. John Baker, in his book, Life Healing Choices, says this. Are you all put together? The fact is that most of us are a bit of a mess. We're scattered all over the living room floor with no one to put us together and no idea where to begin the process of healing. Each of our lives is tangled up with hurts that haunt our hearts, hang-ups that cause us pain, and habits that mess up our lives. There's not a person in the world who doesn't deal with at least one of those on some level. And many of us struggle with all three. Haven't we seen that in the world these last couple of years? But here's the wonderful news of Easter, is that God does not desire and long and plan for you to have to live with your hurts and your hang-ups and your habits causing you pain for any more. The resurrected Jesus is the unshakable hope for life. You see, Jesus had already come to Mary. He'd come to Mary and cast seven demons out of her. Theologians think the reason that the number seven is used there because it shows something of an ongoing process of commitment of Jesus to see the healing of Mary's every part of her life. Jesus was committed to see her worth established, her value increase, her inclusion, and for her to find purpose and meaning in life. There's no no wonder that when she found the risen Jesus, 
Her weeping turned to laughter, to joy. There's no wonder that she grabbed hold of him so tightly that he had to say, woman, just just give me a little bit of space right now. Because I think she was probably like, you left me once, I'm not letting you go ever again, like you're staying right here. And even though Jesus didn't physically stay in that place, he did remain spiritually with her and he remains with us forevermore. You see, if Jesus is alive today as we attest to in a heavenly sense, then the very things that he did for Mary, he can do for you. That there is no far that you could have gone that was too far for Jesus. There is no sense of being too broken that is too much for Jesus. Jesus is a healer. Jesus brings life and the future and a hope. We don't have to put up with the hurts and the hang-ups and the habits anymore because on the cross, Jesus nailed every sin, every sickness, every fear, every oppression, and guess what? He triumphed over them. And that's what we are here to celebrate. He comes to us with healing. He comes to us with forgiveness and cleansing and power out of the tomb with the power to set you free today. And no matter how broken you feel, Jesus can set you free. I heard the story of a, a guy called Brian, and Brian struggled for, for very, very many years with a sense of shame and anxiety and brokenness and fear. And one Easter, he met the risen Lord Jesus in an Easter service like this. His life was radically transformed, and he went on to found a charity called Kintsugi Hope. Some of you will know what Kintsugi is, but here's a picture just in case uh, you don't. There it is. He explains that kintsugi is a Japanese practice of mending broken pots, not with invisible glue, but with seams of gold. This doesn't hide the damage, but repairs the brokenness in a way that makes the object even more beautiful and even more unique than when it was before it was broken. Instead of hiding the brokenness, it makes something beautiful from it. And that's exactly what Jesus comes to do. Even in the pandemic, as we've run our Alpha courses, as we've invited people to come and know Jesus these last few years, we've seen over again that when people find hope and faith in Jesus, that he weaves gold into their lives that makes something so beautiful from something that was so broken. He brings healing. He brings hope. He brings freedom. But the second thing that Mary discovered at the grave and at the resurrection is that in the resurrection we find an unshakable hope for our society, for our world. You see, in in verse 1, John tells us that Mary arrived at the tomb in the dark. Now that's not just John saying it was early in the morning. But John, throughout his gospel, uses this idea of darkness to represent the darkness that is in the world. A darkness of brokenness, of abuse, of injustice and violence and war and arrogance and pride. The very things that tear our world to pieces. A world broken by sin and Satan. And I feel like we've, we've witnessed maybe in a new way over the last few years what some of those things can look like. And even though we've continued to push for advances in science and health and education and all the different aspects of life, we've realized that there's just not quite enough to deal with the brokenness. We're still looking for the thing we've not yet found, the thing that might heal our society, the thing that might turn darkness into light. And what the resurrection of Jesus Christ says 
is this is it. This is where light steps into darkness to bring unshakable hope. John says these words in verse 1, early on the first day of the week. And John writes those words not just to tell us it was the first day of the week, but to echo something that happened in Genesis chapter 1, the very opening pages of the Bible. Because in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created The world was dark and formless, and he created light. Creation, beauty, and joy sprung out of the darkness. And this is what John is telling us is the new creation. Out of the darkness, the resurrection is the start of the new week of God's creation. The recreation has come because on the cross, Jesus took all the darkness. He took all the sin, all of Satan's rubbish, and he took it on himself, and he defeated them so that now we have in him the power to see the healing begin. That's why I think Mary mistakes Jesus for a gardener. I don't know if it's because Jesus was covered in mud or like what it was on that first morning as to why he thought she thought he was a gardener. But I think once again, what John is reminding us is that in the same way as Adam was an original gardener in the Garden of Eden, So Jesus is the real gardener, the true gardener who gets to the root of the problems. He comes into our life to uproot those kind of broken weeds of pain and greed and pride and division and hatred and bitterness and unforgiveness. And instead what he does is this. He plants forgiveness. He plants love. He plants mercy and he plants grace. And as he plants it in our hearts, it starts to change the world around us. In the 1700s in London, there was a group of young aristocrats, think with the crazy wigs and the funny clothes and the horse-drawn carriages and Downton Abbey and all those kind of things. And they were a bunch who were in this wild living stage where there was lots of partying and gambling and womanizing went on. But this group of very wealthy individuals, they found Jesus and they were transformed by his power and his life. And so they went from every single night going out and getting drunk and gambling and all those kind of things to meeting every night to pray, to be together, to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit got hold of this really unlikely group of people, suddenly he started to place burdens on their hearts for transformation. Transformation in England of the penal system, transformation around the world in areas of homelessness and education and reform. But one particular young guy, a guy called William Wilberforce, was overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. William Wilberforce was so rich and wealthy that by virtue of his upbringing, he was in the houses of Collins. He was a, a, a politician. But the Holy Spirit spoke to him about ending the slave trade. And so he came to Houses of Parliament for the very first time, age 27 in 1787, And he said, so enormous, so dreadful did the wickedness appear of the slave trade that my own mind was completely made up for its abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from that time, determined I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. And so he put bills to Parliament in England in 1789, 1791, 1792, 1794, 1796, 1798, and 1799, and every single one failed. So unpopular was it. 
1831, he sent a message to the Anti-Slavery Society in which he said, our motto must be perseverance, and ultimately, I trust, the Almighty will crown our efforts with success. And he did. On 1833, William Wilberforce put a final bill to Parliament full of the Holy Spirit, and the abolition of slavery bill was passed in government, outlawing slavery across the British Empire. Three days later, William Wilberforce went to be with the Lord in heaven. You see, when God gets hold of a man, when he gets hold of a woman, when his Holy Spirit starts to fill their life, then actually it's impossible to be the same anymore. And the more we become full of the resurrected life of Jesus, the more we find that we actually have to bring change naturally because we are so full of God's love and life. We've talked in this place a lot over the last four weeks about buildings. We've talked about paint, and we've talked about lights, and we've talked about carpets, and we've even talked about pews, and how we can't believe we have to sit on pews now. But, you know, the thing that excites me about being here is nothing to do with this building. The thing that excites me about being here this morning is because we are right in the heart of the city. When Laura and I first moved here, we heard God's prophetic call a number of times in spectacular ways to being fathers and mothers in the city to bringing transformation to the city, to bringing transformation to the business communities, the educational establishments of the city. And so I love that we are here today, but not because this is nice and comfortable and shiny and we really like it. I love it because what this place really is, this is a hospital for the sinners. This is a college where we're going to get trained. This is a place where we're going to see transformation of our lives, and then then what we're going to do is we're going to go out of those doors and we're going to see transformation of our streets, and we're going to see transformation of our colleges, and we're going to see transformation of our businesses. We're going to take the resurrection life of Jesus out of here because we are about our city, and we want to see our city find that same resurrection life of Jesus. Is that okay? Good. But here's the very final thing as I close that that Mary saw in the resurrection is that she found an unshakable hope for the future. Mary approached the tomb in darkness because she thought death had destroyed all hope. You know, death is kind of this final thing to so many people, isn't it? It's this irreversible thing. It's like the last taboo that we must not under any circumstances ever talk about over a pint of beer or a cup of coffee. I think that's why when some children were asked by their teacher to write little sentences about what they believed about death. This is what they said. Gilda, aged eight. When you die, they put you in a box and bury you in the ground because you don't look too good. (laughs) Stephanie, aged nine. Doctors help you so you don't die until you pay their bills. (laughs) Marsha, aged nine. When you die, you don't have to do homework in heaven unless your teacher is there also. (laughs) And Raymond, age 10, a good doctor can help you so you won't die. A bad doctor sends you to heaven. I feel like death is our ultimate enemy. We have whole industries, we have a whole society set up to put it as far away from us as possible, to postpone it for as long as we possibly can. But here's the truth, is the reality is that one day it will catch up to us at some point. But this is the great news of the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus didn't stay dead, 
if you know and love that same Jesus, his invitation, his offer, his promise to you is that even though you might physically die, you will see eternity with him. You will see heaven, the recreated order without pain, without suffering, without disease and war. You will see that if you know and love Jesus. And that's not just wishful thinking. The historically attested to resurrection of Jesus Christ makes it a reality. He is life and life eternal. Tim Keller wrote this. Think about the power of death for a minute. Think about it. Nothing can stop death. No human being can stop death. The power of decay, the second law of thermodynamics, even mountains can't stop death. Eventually, the mountains will get ground down to pebbles. Even the sun and the stars can't stop death. Even they burn out and go to decay. Think of the power of death. Yet somebody overmatched death. Jesus Christ was swallowed by death and exploded in its bowels. Jesus Christ did not just defy death. He did not just deny death. He destroyed death. And that's the reason why Paul can say later on in the chapter, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? I had another story of a a dad and a son were driving down the road in one summer and the window was down, so they obviously weren't in Pasadena because it would have been too hot. But a bee suddenly buzzed in the window of the car. And, and, and the son just started to freak out, like, I'm going to get stung, I'm going to get stung. But so as the father is driving down the road, without taking his eyes off the wheel, as every single father can do, he reached out and grabbed the bee and held it in his hand. And he held it there, and he held it there. And after a few moments, the buzzing stopped and all was still. But then the father, he, he opened up his hand and the bee started flying away. And the son started panicking again, like, Dad, Dad, why have you let the bee go? What are you doing? What are you doing? And the father turned his hand to the son and showed his son this big red sting mark in his his palm. He said, son, the bee can't sting you anymore. It might still buzz around for a while, but it can't do you any harm. The sting's been taken out. And what we're saying today, right here and now, is that Jesus has done the same to take the sting out of death for you. Even though death still exists, it's an inevitability. It isn't the end. I had another final story of a person called Philip. He was nine years old, and he went to church on Easter Sunday morning. He went to this Sunday school class, and the teacher gave them all a plastic egg, just like the one we had this morning. And he asked, the teacher asked the kids to go out and to fill the eggs with something that reminded them of the Easter story. And some of them put like flowers in them, some of them put twigs or butterflies in them. But the last one was a little guy called Philip and he put nothing inside of it. It was just empty. And his friends all teased him like, why didn't you put something in? And he said, well, I didn't put it in because on the resurrection, just like we said this morning, the the tomb was empty. A few weeks later, Philip died of a congenital disease. In a newspaper article announcing Philip's death noted that at the conclusion of the funeral, Eight children marched forward and put a large empty egg on the small casket. On it was a banner that said, the tomb was empty. See, because death could not hold Jesus, death cannot hold you, and death could not hold Philip. Jesus says in John 11, 
I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet he will live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe someone just dragged you along to church. Maybe this is the first time you've been in a church for a very long time. Maybe you've never been to church at all. But I want to invite you and tell you that the love of Jesus is so real. It's so true. It transformed my life as a teenager when I discovered it. It wasn't just theory, but it was reality. And from the last 20 years, my life has been radically transformed by his saving power. And so I'm going to close our sermon with a prayer. And you can join in with this Easter prayer if you want. It's based around three very simple words. They're the same words we teach our kids. They're the words like this. Sorry, thank you, and please. So if you want to bow your head in prayer, and if you want to say these words quietly in your heart, you're very welcome to do that. Sorry. Father, I am sorry for the things that I have done wrong in my life. I've got regrets. I have done things that I'm ashamed of. Please forgive me. Thank you. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. And please, please come into my life today by your Holy Spirit to be with me forever. Set me free from my hurts, hang-ups, and habits. I want to know you, and I want to know the love of a relationship with you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.